the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show, the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is a program, as you know, now dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, church questions, questions about anything going on in your life, at least the Bible's perspective on those things, and all you have to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, especially with the streets being a little wet today, the safest way to call if you're driving in your car is to use the free KSLR mobile app, Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen and everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, we've got nothing going on today, so I'll get right to some questions. Let me take just 20 seconds. I want to thank KSLR and Chad uh, Gamage, the the, uh, general manager of the station, uh, and Marcus. Uh, I, I had an opportunity to go interview with them today. Uh, for a, a feature that they've got coming up. And what great people. Boy, we've been in a partnership with them for, for now 10 years on this program, longer on our teaching program. And uh, it's just really and truly an honor to work with uh, the people at KSLR. We've had a great relationship, and Lord willing, it will continue for some time. Okay, here is a question that came from Mary. She says, John 31 says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. What are your thoughts on asking non-believers to pray? For example, in the case of a loved one who is sick, we often say to family members who don't know Jesus, please pray for him or her or keep him in your prayers. If God can't hear their prayers, should we stop asking them to pray? Mary, you're, you're, you're probably right technically, but here's what I do. Uh, I'll use that uh, to talking to people I know are unbelievers uh, because it's sometimes saying, hey, would you pray for, for so-and-so or we got a, a, somebody who needs this, would you pray for them? And uh, when we, we, I do that, uh, it sometimes opens a door for conversation. So that's all it is. I'm not presuming they're a believer. I'm not giving them any false hope that God is going to hear their prayers. Uh, it's just an opportunity, a little door that's slightly ajar that they may take the bait and ask about um, what we believe. You know, um, when John says that we know that God does not listen to sinners, I think that's something that we have to remember always. He listens to people who... <laughs> that was another sneeze break. That's Mountain Cedar. So we know he listens to people who belong to him. And the reason, Mary, is because only believers have been given access to the throne of God. Hebrews says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence 
the King James says boldly. I don't like that translation uh, there so much because the idea is we yell and we scream. That's not, not what it means. We can go with confidence and confidence to know that our prayers are going to be heard and answered. And in our time of need, God is always there. So we have been given access and nobody who, who isn't born again uh, has access or has any ability to communicate with God. And what that means, Mary, is that there's only one prayer that God can hear from an unbeliever. And that's this one. Lord, save me, a sinner. And then when that door opens, of course, then prayers can be heard. So good observation. But no, I don't think we need to stop asking them to pray, uh, I, I think it sometimes is an opportunity to share our faith a little bit. So I hope that makes sense to you, Mary. Thank you. Here's a question from Kevin. He said, when believers sin, are they condemned again until they repent? What if they don't repent and die? Kevin, um, our relationship with God is different than unbelievers. Now, obviously, that's, that's something you know. But as believers, when we get saved, when we're truly born again, all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. They're wiped away far as far from us as east is from west, Jesus said, in the deepest, darkest ocean, and we want to live them there. When we sin as a believer, and all believers sin, um, and until we repent, then what's cut off is our access to God. And by that I mean we can't have fellowship with him. And the fellowship is important. We've got to be with Jesus every day. But if we sin and we're unrepentant, then that fellowship with the Holy God has been broken off. And then we are on our own. And sadly, Kevin, way too many believers let that situation go on a very, very long time. And what we need to remember is the shorter our accounts, that's why Paul says to examine ourselves daily to see whether or not we're in the faith, uh, the shorter our accounts with God are, then the, the more instant the access that we have to God. So when we get saved, it's all about fellowship with Jesus. And fellowship gets broken by sin when we ask God to forgive us. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins... He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's just John's way of saying access reopened. And then we can fellowship with God again. So if I sin and I die before I have a chance to repent, I'm still going to heaven. It's just that the time between that sin and the time that I would die, my fellowship with Jesus is cut off. Good question. Thank you very, very much, Kevin. Um, Mike says, is entire sanctification true? Is it possible not to sin ever again? Mike, um, I haven't heard this term, entire sanctification, used before. Um, the, the, the issue is typically sinless perfection. Can we ever get to that place where we're not going to sin? And the answer is no, not as long as we're in the flesh and blood of these bodies. We're born with a sin nature. That sin nature continues to live. We're to put it to death. Um, we've been given the, the, the power to overwhelm it um, by, by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. But the, the reality is we will sin, and that's why we need to confess and repent. Uh, but the idea that somebody can ever get to that place where they are perfect. I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm so close to Jesus, I'm not going to sin anymore. Um, the Apostle John in 1 John says, if a man says he's without sin, he's a liar and the truth is in him. And I think that's pretty direct. I think that's pretty direct. You know, Mike, it always amazes me that these doctrines keep coming around. There's been a lot of proponents of sinless perfection uh, on radio stations around the country, and they come and they go, and people watch the Internet. Um uh, even the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 7 is autobiographical. Romans chapter 7, Paul said, what I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? So we are in the process of sanctification. Now, we are justified 
And I think the best way to remember that, Mike, is that we're just as if we'd never sinned. Um, that means we're, we're perfect from God's perspective. But as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul says to the Philippians in chapter 2 of that epistle, um, we're working out our salvation, but the reason we're working it out is because sin is a constant threat. We're, we're being tempted. We, we give in. And Paul says, no, just keep walking, keep working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And uh, that's that's uh, where we need to be. So um, if you're listening to somebody who says that you can be perfect without sin, uh, that's a lie. It's not true. And it's dangerous. Mike, I know a lot of people have been hurt by this. Here's a question from Penny. And I think my producer is going to be convicted when I read this one. Penny says, is it sin to be addicted to coffee? The answer is yes. What did Paul say? Uh, I will not be mastered or put under the control of anything. And any addiction except to Jesus is by definition a sin. Now, Penny, this is always crazy to me. You know, I, I know Christians that can't even speak to somebody kindly before they've had one or two cups of coffee in the morning, and they'll point fingers at somebody who's drinking too much alcohol. Well, coffee is an acceptable Christian sin, but to be addicted to it, to be brought under the control of it, is in fact a sin, and it's something that I think we need to deal with. It's like overeating. Uh, it's like, uh, uh, well, I'm just an angry person. This is just who I am. Um, you know, the, the reality is um, being under the control or the dominion, I love the King James word, of anything is something that we Christians ought not to be guilty of. So uh, if you're addicted to coffee, if you can't do without it, then you go before the Lord and let him know that you need help on this. And he'll help you do it, but you've got to be sincere in doing it. Now, just because coffee is acceptable, remember, we can't be brought under the power of anything other than the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So whether you're drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, um, smoking cigars, uh, drinking beer, uh, to be unable to stop ought to be a sign that we're in trouble. And believe me, Penny, inside the Christian church, people are addicted to coffee. I mean, they would rather give up almost anything than give up their coffee habit. You know, let me tell you, Penny, just a quick bit of information you don't need about me. I'm 71 years old. I've never had a drink of coffee in my life. I one time put some coffee-flavored ice cream in my mouth and just almost got sick. Uh, I, I've never had a drink of coffee, ever. And um, I'm going to try to make the rest of my life without doing it either. So the coffee is something I just don't have any capacity to understand at all. I don't know why we need it. Uh, it seems to me that the, the people drinking coffee get younger and younger and younger. I see very young teenagers drinking coffee right along with their parents. I'm not sure that's a good thing. I'm not sure it's a good thing. So I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's one from Nathaniel. Does God speak to us in any way other than Scripture? Um, yes, he does, Nathaniel. Now, I want to be careful to be understood here. Um, the primary way that God speaks to us is through his living and active word. That's why we've got a Bible. Paula was reading to me today, and as she was reading, she says, I'm really glad we read that passage um, because she, she's, she wanted to be reminded of something relative to God's faith. But the Bible will speak to us if we open it, if we study it. One of the things that just drives me nuts is Christians that really won't discipline themselves to, to read or study their Bibles. It's because that, that they're effectively cutting off God's ability to speak to their heart. And it's so much easier, Nathaniel, to have somebody say, well, you know, God spoke to my heart 
And, and many times it's something that's in contradiction to what the Word says, and we know that can't be of God, but we're always looking for easy ways, things that don't require a commitment or a sacrifice. We, we, we're looking for those kinds of things to keep us from having to read or study our Bibles. So the primary way, and if you're not in your Bible, Nathaniel, God is not going to speak to you. He's not going to speak to your heart, period. However, if you're in the Word, and you're seeking God with all of your heart, there are times when God will speak to your heart. Very clearly, directly, um, that always op- uh, provides an opportunity for the enemy to come and say, oh, you don't think that was God, do you? So there's always going to be a little bit of doubt that creeps in. But God will speak to us, um, just speaking to our heart. It will always be consistent with the Word of God. So we don't have to worry about contradicting messages. And uh, God will honor that. I, I, God spoke to my heart um, in 1994, March 4th. It was such a profound moment that I, I wrote it in my Bible, the date and the time. God spoke to me and said to begin praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas. I was in the mountains at Bible college taking a walk with the Lord. I, I wasn't even asking him. What what we're going to do here, Lord? Where am I going to go? I'm going to be a pastor, but what else am I? Do you have to say to me? Nothing like that was going on. I was just worshiping the Lord, just taking a walk. So grateful for the opportunities that He'd set before me in Bible college. And on that March fourth, nineteen ninety four day, He said, "Begin praying for the people of San Antonio, Texas." I had no idea that it was going to change my life. Now I can't go to the Bible and say. Uh, okay, i got to look for a Bible confirmation about San Antonio. Where can I find San Antonio? It's not in the Bible. But I knew that Jesus had visited me. And that's just one of the things. He he spoke to my heart about starting a free school. He spoke to my heart about uh, starting a, a free doctor's office, family practice doctor's office here at the church where people could go and pay nothing, no insurance or anything. So God speaks to our heart. But we've got to be able to validate it in the Word. It's got to be consistent with the Word. And if you don't know the Word, then God's not going to speak. I hope that makes sense to you, Nathaniel. We we, we need, and this is, I'm sure this isn't your, your uh, motive here, but too often people are looking for easy ways not to have to read and study the Bible. That's one of the reasons that false prophets abound in the Christian church in 2023 uh, because we'd rather have somebody else speak to us than have to dig out the Word of God ourselves. So I hope that makes sense. Here's a question from Brian. Oh, I got a phone call first. Thank you for reminding me. Got Victor on line one. Victor, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Afternoon, Pastor Ron. Hi, Victor. I got a question for you on uh, local local uh, church government. I do believe that uh, the local church should be autonomous, self-governing, not uh, under some kind of hierarchy like a lot of these mainline denominations are. But I do see a lot of problems when it comes to uh, the decisions on on the uh, how to spend the the the, the money. Uh, it usually goes under a, a vote, a membership vote, and and I just wanted to know if you have. Uh, I know you have a lot of your stu- your lessons, your studies, Bible studies online or uh, archived, as, as as you can refer me to one, to where you go over that, or if you don't have one, maybe there's a, a, a textbook that you that you require your your uh, your church leaders to 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 learn and study about. And, and just uh, about you know what what the conflicts are, why, what is your preference on local church government and and the yeah. do's and don'ts and the why this that and the other? I'll go ahead and hang up and I'll listen to you on the radio. Thanks a lot, Pastor. Thank, thank you, Victor. Thank you for your listening and and uh, for your thoughtful question. I also want to thank you because the Lord just used you to confirm something to me that uh, He wants me to speak about at our pastors' discipleship class on this Saturday. See, so not only will the word 
God will speak to you through his word. He'll speak to your heart. But sometimes he'll even use other people like Victor just now because I've sort of been debating about what to what to share on Saturday with our guys. Um, Victor, a, a couple of says you can go to um, 1 Timothy, um, the qualifications, chapter 3, overseers and deacons, and I, I may touch on some of that stuff um, there. Um, uh, I, I love the book, but but uh, I, I can't off the top of my head remember exactly how detailed I got into it. You know, there's a lot of things scripturally that we can um, kind of dig into, um, but but in a 40 or 45 minute block of time uh, when we're teaching the Bible, there are some things that 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 wouldn't necessarily be in there. So try First Timothy, chapter three. Um, in Titus chapter 2, uh, where Paul is talking about the qualifications for, um, for overseers or pastors, uh, elders, that's also for pastors. And uh, it, it typically gives me an opportunity to talk about church government. Uh, I agree completely with you that it really bothers me. Um, um, and you see the denominational churches um, falling apart before our very eyes. Um, you know, they can't make decisions about whether or not homosexuality is sin. And so they've got big splits, big chasms. Um, uh, I, I agree that the, the local church should be autonomous. It ought to be uh, governed, self-governed, uh, and there needs to be a standard. Now, uh, Calvary Chapel, Victor, I'll tell you very directly, is a pastor-led form of church government. It's who we are. We believe that God gives a vision to a man uh, and then that man surrounds himself with people that will hold him accountable um, and, and support the, the vision of ministry that God has given. Uh, so it's not like we're, we're, we're lone rangers. We can do whatever we want. Uh, but at the same time, um, if I was operating under a church government form um, that required a budget, required um, um, a plan to do this, where's the money coming from, we never would have started a free school. We never would have started... Uh, a free doctor's office, all the things that we do, uh, e even this radio program, um, you know, there wouldn't have been unanimity. So um, our form of church government here is a pastor-led church. Um, our bylaws, Victor, I've got uh, uh, a group of elders. Uh, all of them are people that have, have uh, been raised up in the church uh, the, the the two original elders, my first two elders, are still elding. Uh, they've been with me now for 26 years. And um, we added elders as the church grew, as the church mission grew. Uh, but uh, I'm accountable to them. I'm certainly accountable to the Lord. Um, but, um, you know, their, their role is not to govern. Their role is to support the vision and ministry that God has given me and help us accomplish that vision. Uh, my elders and pastors are also um, men who teach. They have teaching ministries as well. Um, that's what the Bible says they ought to have. And so they, they are um, uh, support. Um, they are men who could come to me at any time. I, I love them and I respect them. We've been together so long. They could come to me at any time. And if they said, Pastor Ron, we're noticing that you're going off a little bit here. You're going off a little bit here. Um, hopefully my flesh wouldn't be so bad that I would, uh, that I would refuse to listen to them. Um, so that's the role, the function that they have in the church. And, and I personally believe that any other form of government, whether it's congregational government that you see in a Baptist church um, uh, or a, 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 an elder-led or a presbytery, um, I, I just don't think any of those really enable the mission of the church to be accomplished. So, Victor, I hope that answers your question. Um, but uh, that's the government. You can go all the way back to Moses and say God, uh, God picked him and spoke to the people through Moses. When Moses was done, he picked Joshua, and then he told Joshua, well, I'm not gonna be, you're not going to be the same as Moses, but don't turn to the left or the right. Focus on the word. And so uh, Joshua's job was to, to, to direct them to the word of God, to the, to the law of God. 
and um, and and throughout the years, New Testament as well, that's what he's done. Paul says to appoint elders in the churches, and there's a lot of people who say, well, that means you have to have multiple elders and elder rule church. Uh, but but an elder is not the same thing here as it was in the first century church. They were pastors then. And there were small churches, home churches. So he had to appoint elders. That's why it's plural, elders, because there were a lot of different house churches. Uh, there was nobody over it all. I guess you could say the apostles in the first century were over it. We don't have those apostles today. So what we do have uh, is a system of, of church government that simply says, um, let's do what God told us to do. And we, we're going to be faithful to keep the the uh, the vision that God has given us uh, in, in the forefront. But let's do what he says. And as you're faithful to do those things, he expands that vision and increases that vision. But the idea that uh, the pastor of a church ought to be accountable to a larger governing body or a denomination um, or that money needs to be spread around. I just It just makes no sense at all to me. So I agree with you, Victor. I hope you can find uh, in those uh, commentaries uh, online that uh, I've dealt with those things. So hope that makes sense to you. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday show. We'd love your live calls and questions, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-630. KSLR. This is the word to stand up for life. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of the program at 340-9585 for your live calls and questions or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. I'm being told that we're getting a bunch of texts about people who didn't like my response about the coffee addiction. What do you mean coffee? Coffee is good for you. We need coffee, those kind of things. I didn't say coffee was bad. Being addicted to it or being under the power of it, that's what's bad. And here's the first question to answer, honestly. All of you who are believers, do you have to have a cup of coffee before you open your Bible? Before you can even think about what's the Lord got on your plate for today? Or, or before you can be nice to the people in your home? If the answer to those questions is yes, then you ought to take a second look at it. Now, I was in my pre-Christ life, I was um, addicted to caffeine. I used to drink. No kidding. I, I told you, I've shared with you in the past. I, I, before I got saved, I was obese. I drank, no kidding, no exaggeration, at least 40 Coca-Colas a day. And I had been doing it for years and years and years and years. And so I know what I speak about. When talking about being addicted to something. Um, but that's what the power of the Holy Spirit is for. So don't take it personal. If you're not addicted to coffee, you just like it. God bless you. If you're addicted to coffee, deal with it. Let's go to line one. We've got Matthew from Cibolo. Matthew, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Papa Ron. How you doing? I'm doing well, Matthew. How about you? I'm doing well, so I have to catch you up a little bit. I won't take too much of your time or no radio airtime. But um, so, as you know, I come in from a Calvinistic um, church and more of a Reformed theology, and so you and you know and Pastor Ken had to kind of refine me a little bit. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, um, so there's a dear brother that's really dear to my heart, and he's still at our old church, and I talk to him probably like every once every six months. And I think that six-year mark is coming up. And uh, and he usually calls me to how I'm doing, those things. And we end, we end up talking about Jesus. And, and I love him very much. He, he's been my brother for about eight years in the faith. Um, we used to do five years of ministry, things like that. But mm -hmm. I talked to him about this. And, you know, and I really talk, you know, with, I share my heart about, you know, especially when it comes to the doctrine of election and predestination, those things that, 
And because um, I had to be, you know, rewired myself, you know. And anyway, so I always tell him about these things, and I tell him the church that he's at. They have a disqualified pastor who disqualified himself through adultery. But anyway, so when I talk to him about, you know, these certain doctrines or these, you know, issues that we're still, you know, um, not in agreement, um, he always tells me, at the end of the thing, at the end of the conversation, he always tells me, well, you know, the Lord will put us in places where I can help, you know, um, bring the message and, and those things. And I, and I, and I respectfully rebuked him, but I told him that, and I could be wrong here, but I told him, like, the Lord got me out of there to not continue thinking this mindset. And, um, but he's, like I said, he's always saying that his answer is like, well, you know, the Lord, the Lord can use me there. And I said, well, if you're not sharing your actual proper doctrine, sound doctrine, then you're really doing, you're not really doing much there, adding value there. Plus you're under leadership of disqualified pastors. So am, am I wrong for thinking that? Or can you help me give me some more insight? Because I'm anticipating a six-month phone call, and <laughs> and I really wanted to share my heart with him, you know. So, yeah. uh, but go ahead, I'll let you take it. Thank you, Matthew. Come, come, let me give you the good news first. Your brother will be in heaven with you. You can be wrong doctrinally; you're still going to heaven, and 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 there's no heresy um, in a reformed theological perspective. Um, but but we also have to uh, take Paul's advice. You know, when he was getting ready to say goodbye to Timothy, he said, "Watch your life and doctrine closely." Doctrine matters. And if you notice, Calvinists are, uh, they've got all the answers. They're really abrupt. And, and well, I was chosen and you're not chosen. And, and uh, you know, who can question God? Those kind of things. And, and, and they're very ineffective in their ministry. They're, they're even less effective when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you take the, 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 the logical conclusion of Calvinism, if God chooses those who are going to be saved, they will say he chooses those who are going to go to hell. And and so why would I tell anybody God loves them? I actually had a Calvinist in Bible college, uh, Matthew, tell me, uh, I can't tell somebody God loves them because I don't know if they're elect. I don't know if they've been chosen by God. And and when the Bible so clearly declares that God loved the world and everybody in it so much that he sacrificed his son that we could come to heaven, um, uh, we ought to be able to tell everybody that God loves them. And unfortunately, that's just bad doctrine, and it's a, a, a bad uh, practical outworking of that doctrine. Um, it's just not right. And uh, let me say this. You know, there, there's nobody who could be a Calvinist if, in fact, they would just open the Bible and read it and take it at face value for what it says. The only way you can be a Calvinist is to, to lay a, a Calvinist systematic theology over scriptures and then interpret the scriptures through your system. And the reality is we're supposed to interpret the scriptures on their own and develop our own systematic theology around what the Bible says. It's a bibliology rather than, than uh, uh, just, well, well, John MacArthur says this, or this guy says this. And I've actually had people tell me, well, John MacArthur's a Calvinist, and so am I. Well, that's great, but what are you missing out on? And, and to, to come up with a, a Reformed perspective on the Scriptures, uh, you've really got to twist, to redefine words, um, you can say, oh, well, it doesn't mean, for instance, I'll just give you the, the, the primary example. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believed would not perish but have everlasting life. The Calvinists will tell you, yeah, but, but the world doesn't mean the world. Well, I'm pretty sure it means the world. If you look at the Greek and then I'm pretty sure it means the world. No, no, it means the elect. And, and it can't mean that. It means the world. And so those are the kinds of hermeneutic gymnastics that you've got to go through to come up with a Calvinist perspective. So, Matthew, the very best thing you can do, the very best thing you can do for this man. Now, he shouldn't be in a church with a disqualified pastor. Let me say that. If the pastor of that church has disqualified himself by adultery, he should leave then. If the church isn't going to discipline him, 
if they're not going to have somebody come in who is walking in fellowship with the Lord, then for no other reason he ought to leave that church for that reason because that has ceased to become a biblical church. But the same thing is true if the doctrine is wrong. And typically, you're not going to change his mind. So the best thing you can do for your friend is when you talk to him, uh, ask him, so how's it going? Tell me about your joy. Tell me about your, your, your witnessing. Are you sharing Jesus with people? Um, go through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And say, so, so how do those things describe your life? Are they an accurate description of the fruit coming from your life? Or are they not? And just give them something to think about and pray for them. So you can't change their mind. Um, what you can do is show them that fruit is actually coming from your life and that fruit has come uh, since you opened the Bible and and just actually took it at face value for what it says. So, Matthew, I hope that makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much. Uh, one, for your love for your friend. Um, but just talk to him like a friend. Don't Don't debate. Don't argue when somebody says, well, you know, God can still use me there. Well, God can use you anywhere, but why would you want to be in a church where you're going to necessarily have to settle for less than God's best? A disqualified pastor has no business pastoring. And that disqualified pastor has no business being supported by anybody else in the church either. So I hope that makes sense to you, Matthew. Here is a question this time from Brian. He wants to know, do I, do you, Pastor Ron, favor hymns or contemporary music for worship? Um, Brian, I would say probably I just by virtue of the, the, the majority of the music we do is contemporary Christian music. Um, but, but, but they do hymns, some hymns as well. Uh, I personally wasn't raised in church, so... Um, I'm the one guy my age who doesn't know the words to the old hymns. I love them, and I love some of the lyrics. Uh, I read some of Fanny Crosby's lyrics or some of Charles Wesley's lyrics. And, and all I can think, wow, this was a man or a woman who is really in touch with the Holy Spirit. So I like the hymns. I, I do like some of the hymns. Um, but, but I also like contemporary Christian worship as well. So, Brian, I, I don't have a, a we, we do way more contemporary than we do hymns, um, way more, and um, I'm fine with it. Uh, let me tell you what I like the best about worship, what I really favor. I can look at that stage and see the men and the women who are on that stage, and I know them, and I know their hearts are right with God. I know their stories. I know the things that they've overcome. I know the way they fought when they had to take a stand for the Lord. I know what serving Jesus with their whole hearts has cost them in this world, in this life. And I know that those are men and women who are really and truly, really and truly singing love songs to Jesus. And they can sing those lyrics without being ashamed or embarrassed. Now, they're not perfect, but I know their hearts, and believe me, when you hear them begin, you can tell. If you're here in, in our worship, um, we have participatory worship. It's not a concert. Um, that's all they do on stage is they worship. And um, when you hear the worship at our church, um, it's genuine. It's sincere worship in spirit and in truth. So, Brian, thanks for asking. I'm not that much of a music person, so... Uh, not really a good person to ask, but um, I just love when people are worshiping the Lord. Manny says, A blog I've been reading for years seems to be turning into heresy. The blog owner now says he believes everyone will get to heaven. Your thoughts? You know, Manny, um, we read a blog, and, and, and while it's not real community, um, nonetheless, there is some level of community that's developed. Um, there's a blog I read that I don't agree with nearly anything that's said, um, but it was um, a blog that was uh, really for many, many years an anti-Calvary Chapel blog. And um, I've engaged a few times over the years, especially 
a couple of times when uh, when it was about me. I remember when uh, COVID came and our church was in the news uh, because we had like 53 people come down with COVID at the same time uh, in June of 2020. And, uh, you know, uh, some, somehow, uh, slow news week, I guess, we became national news. And um, um, they were pretty roundly um, um, talking badly about me. Uh, and, and so I would, I would engage a little bit uh, on the blog just to say, I, I didn't defend myself, just say, well, well, here's what really happened. This is what happened. Here's why we're opening. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake the similar together of the saints. Uh, and, and so you develop a little bit of, of uh, community, sense of community with some of them. Uh, and I still look back into that blog every now and then and, and uh, see what the people are doing. Um, it depends on you, man. It depends on how it, in, it affects you, what the impact is of uh, a blog that is turning into heresy. One of the problems with the Internet is uh, everybody's an expert now, and, and the blog owner can do whatever he or she wants, and, um, you know, they have a voice. You know, in, in years past, people like that didn't have a voice because nobody would listen to them. But now everybody has a voice. So many, you need to be very careful, um, almost surgically careful about what you read, what you're exposed to, and, and depending on how it affects you. Now, if you can read this blog and, uh, and the heresy moves your heart to pray for the blog owner or the people on the blog, that's a good thing. But if it makes you mad, if it bums you out, um, probably it would be better to um, stop reading it. Uh, it depends on, on you and how you respond to it. Let me say that there is a preponderance now of blogs that really don't believe in what the Bible says. You know, uh, the universalism, um, the, the uh, everybody's going to get to heaven. I can't believe God is a God of love and he would send people to hell. And they're looking for little clues to, to justify what they want to believe. And I had somebody one time email me privately and say, well, well, what would be so wrong if everybody ended up in heaven? Wouldn't that make you happy? And my answer was, no, that wouldn't make me happy. Because what that would mean, if we really think about it, Manny, what it would mean is that we have a God who isn't just, a God who doesn't punish sin, a God who lied to us. Jesus lied to us. He talked about people burning in hell forever and ever and ever. And if there's no justice then there's actually no God at all. And so if we would, would, would get there and think, well, wait a minute, God, what about holiness? What about justice? What about vindicating your people? What about all? Now, I don't need to be vindicated. But as a Bible teacher, what we need to do is be clear about what the Bible says, not what we think about what the Bible says. And the reality is, um, you know, we just keep remaking Jesus in our image over and over and over because it bothers us emotionally. I know a guy in the blog that I'm talking about. I know a guy who, who has, has decided because um, Jesus loves him and he couldn't, be in, he couldn't be happy in heaven without his cats. He has decided that cats are going to go to heaven. And he knows it. I'm just, I'm certain of it. Because God loves me that much. What a selfish approach to doctrine. So what we've got to do is we've got to take what the Word says. Not try to find loopholes in what it says, but take what the Word says. And then we've got to really investigate the character, the nature of God, a loving God. And then we've got to reconcile those two issues that in some cases seem at odds with one another. The reality is God gives everybody free will. God is not going to force somebody to do something that he or she doesn't want to do. And if somebody has expressed in this life that they want to live independent of God, God is not going to sort of pull the rug out from under their feet when they get to heaven and say, okay, well, well, I know you didn't want anything to do with me on earth, but I'm going to force you to be with me forever and ever and ever. 
God wouldn't do that. So again, Manny, depending on whether or not the blog affects you negatively or positively, you can keep reading, keep praying, uh, or not. But the reality is, is uh, hell is real, and uh, we have to own that. If Jesus lied to us about hell, then he cannot be our savior. It's that simple. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Heidi, this is a kind of a goes with Hector's or Victor's question uh, on the call in the first half of the program. Heidi says, I don't think it's right that most churches have just one person who dominates the teaching. We all have gifts, so why not use others as well? Um, you know, the, the, the word says that the office of a pastor, Heidi, is a gift to the church. God raises up a man, and women cannot be pastors. I know they are, but they're again settling for less than God's best. They're saved, and I have no question about that. But but the people that go to that church are settling for God for less than God's best. Um, and and he says that your pastor is a gift to you. It's a gift to the church. Men who can rightly divide the word of God. That's why Paul tells Timothy to be a workman. Show yourself to be approved. Study to be approved. A workman rightly dividing the word of God. And uh, in a church, uh, we we got a lot of people in our church. Um, I've got 10 pastors on my staff. And they're all wonderful teachers. I give them opportunities to teach. they, They have ministries that they're responsible for where they're leading people and doing... T- and, and you know, um, I never have to go outside to get a speaker, except for, like, men's retreats and things like that. Um, but um, the pastor is the one called by God to be responsible for the teaching of the Word. And that's God's model. And because it's God's model, uh, it's our responsibility to, to agree with it. So... Um, I guess I don't really understand, unless you're the one that wants to to, to share, Heidi. Um, I guess I don't really understand why that would bother you. That's the way God established the church. The pastor is the spiritual leader of the church. Um, I do realize there are pastors who take advantage of that and some who even get abusive. But um, that's the way it's going to be. So uh, everybody has the opportunity to use their gifts um, just not the gift of standing in front of the church and rightly dividing the Word of God. So I hope that makes sense to you, Heidi. Catherine says, you know, sometimes there are questions I don't understand the motive. I, I, I can read the words and know what they mean, but I don't understand the motive unless somebody just wants to say, well, well, I need to talk too. I, I want my opinion to matter. Um, I can tell you as a pastor called to lead this church, my opinion doesn't matter at all. My opinion means nothing. We do what God told us to do. Catherine, we're inside four minutes now, so she wants to know, is it necessary to believe that Jesus had to be divine in order to die for sins? Yeah, Catherine, it is. If if Jesus uh, wasn't, and let me also add it, it's, we have to believe that he was human as well. He was 100% human and 100% God. And I know the math doesn't work for us, but but he had two natures. And the divine side was veiled. Um, He didn't walk this earth as God. Though he was God, he walked this earth as a human. And he walked it in contact with the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember when Jesus was baptized at the Jordan River, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. And from that point forward, Jesus walked this earth, Catherine, exactly the same way you and I do, by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's why it's necessary to believe that Jesus was divine. Jesus was divine um, because if he was born the normal way, a husband and a wife having a baby, well, because man has inherited the sin nature from Adam, um, Jesus could not have a sin nature. And the only way to do that was his father or, or you know, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and 
and uh, and she was pregnant. Um, Jesus was born without a sin nature, and uh, only only God um, could do that. So yes, it is an essential of our faith to believe that Jesus was divine. It is an essential to believe that he was also human. It's interesting to me that in the early church, uh, nobody doubted. If a first century church, and we got all kinds of of, uh, of uh, historical references, but the early church had had no problem believing, accepting that Jesus was fully God. The problem in the early church, the the, the heresy of Gnosticism, um, developed when people said, "No, God is spirit, and He can't have anything to do with the flesh." So Jesus only appeared to be a man. He was God, but He only appeared to be a man. That was just an image. That, that he communicated, but he really wasn't human. So in the first century, nobody denied he was God, but the argument was, oh, he, but he couldn't be a man. Now, here we are 2,000 years later, or nearly 2,000 years later, and the argument is just completely flipped. Nobody denies now that Jesus was a real historical figure. I mean, the evidence for his life, his death, and even his resurrection are overwhelming. So nobody denies that. But now the uh, tables have turned and everybody denies that he was divine. So it's just Satan flipping the script uh, for whatever works for the time that we're in there. So Catherine, yeah, you have to believe that Jesus was divine. He was fully God and fully human. Um, And he had to do that in order to qualify to die for the sins of the world. Hope that helps. Hey, thank you for tuning in. It has been a pleasure to be with you today. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. This is the Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I will be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. Have a wonderful evening. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.